Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, April 4th, 2014. 2014 is flying. This week, episode 321 comes to you from Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania. My name is Radio Joe Hughes and here with me at the controls is Jessica Lawson. Good afternoon. Good day, Jess. Back in Studio C in McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Good afternoon, everyone. We got you. And joining us for a roundup a little bit later will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. And today's segments include part two of our interview with Dr. Charlene Baer. We'll do our little halftime, thank our sponsors, and then we're going to bring in our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, for the roundup. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. You can download our past shows by going to the IAQ Radio website and follow the link that says go to the show or we put up a couple of new links uh, this week to take you directly to the TalkShoe website. They are both on our homepage and on the show announcement. Don't forget, we also have continuing education credits. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. And last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. The IAQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, April 4th, 2014. What is the second most common gas found in the air we breathe? And what is the approximate percentage in which the gas is found? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. All right, this week, we've got part two of our interview with Dr. Charlene Baer. She is the chairman and chief science officer at Hygea Sciences, which was founded to commercialize her technologies for detecting human disease from breath and her indoor air quality research. She is a senior research fellow for materials and healthy buildings at the USGBC and a past chair of their research committee. Additionally, she is a principal research scientist at Georgia Research Institute, and over the last 30-plus years, her research has spanned the gamut of the indoor environment. Last week, we talked to her about her work at Georgia Tech and with the USGBC. This week, we're going to focus more on Hygieia and some of her technology coming out of that group. She has spent her career developing methodologies to detect indoor air contaminants at increasingly lower levels of detection, and she is currently researching that breath analysis we're going to talk a little bit about. They're going to try and detect health states, exposures, and diseases. She was recently inducted into the IAQA Hall of Fame in March of 2014. Dr. Baer has multiple patents and is the author and presenter of over 150 papers. Her PhD and MS are from Emory University, and I believe it was chemical or chemistry, and her BS is from Baylor University. Let's see if we've got Dr. Bear on the line. Do we have you? Good afternoon. All right. Welcome. Great to have you back. Uh, part two. Let's. Hey, before we go into the, the new stuff, I want to go back to um, a little bit we talked about last week. We were talking about microbial VOCs and in particular about using VOCs 
to help determine if there's mold present in a building or a home or whatever. And, um, you know, I just I wanted to clarify, are you saying we cannot use VOCs at all to determine if there's a possibility of mold growth or just that it, it gives you inconsistent results? It, it really gives you inconsistent results. Um, you can use them as far as they are particularly useful is for odors. Um, you know, our noses are very sensitive, and we're better at, we as test animals are better than most analytical instrumentation. So you can smell the musty, dirty scent odor, um, and that helps, you know, then you can definitely watch through that. But the issue of literally going in and looking at a signature and saying, I know there's mold present in this space, doesn't work because most of the compounds are from a multitude of sources. I see. I'm curious, in your experience, you know, it's funny you mentioned the, the instruments and the nose. I've been doing a project with a fuel oil spill. And until about a week ago, I used this TIF. It's a combustible gas meter. And it was picking it up, you know, real nicely. I mean, our nose obviously could pick it up. And then when I finally got it down to the point where the combustible gas meter wouldn't pick it up anymore, I could still pick it up with my nose, but I couldn't really pinpoint where it was coming from. Are we making any progress with respect to these instruments? Are we getting closer to being able to kind of match what the human nose can do? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) We are, now, not to be so negative, we are making progress. And for certain types of compounds in certain instances, but for being able to, to, to do like the nose does and, and differentiate between a large number of compounds, we've still got a long way to go, especially yeah. at the detection limits that are necessary. And if we, and then that would just be getting to where the human nose is. Um, I happen to be at the same place today. They had a beagle and several uh, little miniature dachshunds there, and I was thinking to myself, "Wow, if I can smell it, I'll bet they can really smell this." I mean, their sensitivity sensitivity is much better than ours, as I understand it. Yes, it is. And um, for instance, there's a, a pest company here in Atlanta that advertises that he uses dogs to detect the presence of termites. Um. Yeah, I mean, dogs are used have have been shown to be able to detect the presence the, the odor of cancer in one of our. This is kind of moving into hygiene, but that's all right. Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Yeah. Um, but one of the in our studies, um, we had one particular lady that came into the position that I work with, uh, and she says said that the reason she you know, she had stage four breast cancer, she was older. And the reason she finally went and had a mammogram was because her dog kept pushing at her breast. Huh. And she finally went in and had, you know, had a um, mastectomy. And once the cancer was gone, the dog stopped bothering her. Interesting. Now, my dog was yes. sniffing my shoes yesterday. I don't know what that was all about. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. One more thing before we move on to Hygieia. Uh, let's see. We were talking about the lag time. I found that fascinating. So uh, an asthma trigger, you're, uh, an asthmatic is exposed to an asthma trigger, and it can take up to three days before the asthma attack occurs. And I didn't clarify for listeners, I wanted to make sure I do uh, while we have you back today. Is that always the case, or is this just, you know, we know that sometimes, and how often is there that long of a lag? Um, Getting beyond my knowledge and probably the knowledge of anybody at this point, the the issue becomes more critical, you know, like this time of the year. I don't know about you guys, but we've got... Our pollen count today is over 7,000. So allergy has sprung. Um, so if, if it is an asthmatic that the particular, you know, the particular, their particular allergies uh, and, what, and what, they, what sets off their asthma, is the things that's in the air right now, they're being bombarded by these every day, constantly. So it's not possible to differentiate when the actual exposure occurred because it's, it's a constant exposure. So the lungs don't have time to recover. I see. If it's more of a single point 
in time where you can, can track the exposure versus when it, it occurs. That's when it's been noted that the lag time occurs. But, you know, we're beyond my knowledge of knowing whether it's everybody, whether it's always, um, it's, this, this is just what the studies have shown is this lag time. I see. Okay. Well, let's move on to, oh, Cliff, anything you wanted to add or ask there? Not on that. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Now, let's move back over to Hygieia. First of all, what is, where does the, the term Hygieia come from? Hygieia Sciences, LLC. Hygieia is the goddess of health. And since uh, whether we're focusing on indoor air or whether we're focusing on diseases, we are concerned with health, health exposure um, and, and that sort of thing. So that was, that was basically where the, the, it came from. It was my business partner's idea to use it. But you, you did tell me that you didn't expect one problem from using that name. <laughs> that it would be so hard to <laughs> well, we've got one, two, three, four vowels in a row. H Y G I E I A. You know what? You could probably get a kid to do that real quick. E I E I A. They could figure that. <laughs> anyway, um, usually right. someone leaves out the I before the last A. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was doing there, but I finally figured it out. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you do there. This, as I understand it, this is a big part of your life today. You're, you're spending a lot of time working with, um, the Hygieia group and what is the main focus behind the group? What, what are your main uh, goals with respect to starting this group? Uh, you know, I, I, as you said, my main goal is to, to commercialize and make commercially available, um, technology and work and research that I have done at Georgia Tech. Um, there, there really are two pieces to it. One is the more, it's the indoor air, more research area, um, taking it out of an academic setting and moving it more into a, um, more readily available setting so that, um, um, you aren't, it, it, it like, you know, if a company comes to us, they are not caught up necessarily in all the limitations that will be there from an academic department. I see. Um, you know, one of those things is, you know, one of the requirements of an academic department is you have to be able to publish. Um, and although the publishing can be done very generically, you still have to be able to publish. And that's all. That's not always desirable for certain situations. Um, so by allowing this research, you know, it's, it's not competing with people like what you do, it's, it's the higher level still maintaining the research and the consulting and be able to um, provide a higher level of and, and interact with people like your company and be able to provide more information to you all so you can do a better job. And, you know, one of the big problems, uh, in, no matter what the research is, uh, that goes on between academia and practitioners is there's not a translation of the research into practitioners. In academia, you're, what, what we're expected to do is to publish. And that, you know, in, in a, what's called a high-impact journal, you know, so it looks good on your resume, et cetera, that's not necessarily helping a practitioner because that's, that's at a level that they may not work at. Um, but, but then the practitioners have really unique knowledge that the researchers need to know. So we're, we're trying to provide this interface to the more practical side where we can, we can take some of the academic knowledge and pass it to the practitioner and vice versa, and we end up with, with something that really works versus, you know, 90% of all academic research basically goes nowhere yep. because it's not translated down. Um, now, on the breath analysis side, um, several years ago, I got involved in, in um, got interested and started doing research in can we use breath um, to, to be able to measure diseases. And I'm not the only person doing this. Um, there, there's, you know, it's not a huge group of people, but, but it is uh, growing around the world. Um, can we come up with a, not, a totally non-invasive way to be able to track diseases, health states, uh, much of the focus has either been on um, different cancers or on um, H. pylori, which causes ulcers. 
and there are a number of people working on trying to be able to track um, some of the, the viruses, such as HIV or diabetes, you know, that way. So, I, you know, I got interested, wondering if I could do it. I've been doing air research for years, you know, another source of air. Can we actually come up with a way that we can, can monitor this and be able to, to be able to tell someone as a non-invasive screening technology, I think you need to go have a mammogram. I mean, it's, it's that simple. Okay. Well, let's, before we go into, I want to go into the breath in more detail, the breath analyzer. But before we do, um, actually, uh, one of our listeners kind of read my mind here, Susan Valenti. Hello, Susan. Um, she mentioned that ISIAC, the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate, has also been trying to bridge the gap between researchers and practitioners, but in her opinion, they haven't been able to do it very well, I guess. But um, are you working with them? And and my follow-up to that is, how are you doing that? Are you, like, inviting practitioners in to work with you on certain projects, or are you publishing things for them on a website? I mean, how, how have you looked at trying to bridge that gap? Um. I'll take ISIAC first. Yes, I'm I'm a member of ISIAC, and I'm very well aware of that. Uh, and I'm on a committee where we are trying to uh, bridge that gap better. Um, what we're in the process of doing right now is putting together a series of short PowerPoints that will be, I think, will be on YouTube once they, once they're finally put together and released. Um, that will. That are, that are trying to do some of the translation in short little pieces. Uh, me personally, um, part, part of my uh, position with um, of my requirements of my contract with USGBC is to write regularly on a blog, which is publicly available. It's um, yeah, called insight-gbig.org. Uh, and we try to... to uh, you know, there's there's six fellows total. We are expected to put out a certain number of blogs, and we try to be as trying trying to build this interaction. Um, yes, what you know, as far as bringing in people, whenever I need someone, I you know, I do bring in other people. I don't, I can't do everything, nor do I know everything. Now, I was amazed. I found it very interesting sitting in some of the um, IQA meetings listening to some of the really practitioner talks. I tried to go to as many of the, the pure practitioner talks as I could. And, you know, I was sitting there taking notes actually about my own house. I was sitting there texting my husband saying, we need to do this for a house. <laughs> um, he was actually out of town at the time in a meeting, and I'm sure he was going, make my wife stop. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let her in any more of these sessions, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, yes, and, and but through meetings, through talking to people, through bringing in people, um, you know, I, I do it pretty informally at the moment. Um, I'm getting, I'm working with Carl Grimes to write a paper that will hopefully talk some more about this. Um, the current president of IQA and I are talking to try to put together a session on how to to translate um, academic work into um, into the practitioner and, and trying to really build a program. Um, that's some of what I do with NIH. NIH has actually started a center. Unfortunately, at the moment, they're only looking at cancer technologies, but they started a new center, and, and its whole purpose is how to translate research so that the money that's spent on research actually gets use. It actually comes up with something practical. That's You know, before we go forward, I know Cliff has a follow-up. I want to make sure I got that blog site right. It was, is it Insight? Uh, give it to Insight me. Insight slash gbig.org. Gbig. So G-B-I-G. Yeah, so and is Insight S-I-G-H-T or S-I-T-E? S-I-G-H-T. Insight slash gbig.org. Got it. We'll put it on the blog, too. Okay, Cliff, go for it. Yeah. Interestingly, I, I heard a new term this week that was used um, 
in regard to these Benghazi hearings uh, you know, that are going on in, in Washington, D.C. And what the term was, was ground truth. And, you know, when I heard that, uh, you know, to me it was you know, a paradigm shift in that you have what people in the ivory tower think, and then, uh, or in academia, and then uh, we, we also with people that write standards for restoration and uh, remediation and so on and so forth. And then we have what's really occurring on site and on the ground. And, and I think in our industry, it's probably more job site truth than ground truth. But, um, you know, I think in terms of approaching this transference of information from uh, practitioner to academia and from academia to practitioner, uh, you know, we, we can do it more and we can do it better. And, you know, perhaps now that this terminology is already being used, and I think it came somehow from verifying what satellite photographs pick up and what's actually on the ground, but uh, I think that it will help make that research a lot more usable. Hopefully. Yeah. That's, you know, and, and I'm trying to figure out, I have to think more about this. And if any listeners have any suggestions on how Charlene and Carl and others uh, are, you know, working toward getting practitioners, working more with academia, academia, you know, getting more research into the field, let us know. You know, we'd love to get your thoughts and then get them back to the right people. All right. So let's move on. Um, Cliff had put a question together here prior to the first show and I wasn't sure what he meant by it but I think knowing him he picked up something from one of your papers or your site or something and he asked the question what what is your definition of air analysis <laughs> um yeah it's analysis <laughs> The, the smart aleck remark is it's analysis of air I mean <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have um, a feeling there's something deeper there. I don't know why. He always picks up these little nuggets here and there, and you know. I, you know, I, air, air is a unique substance. It's very complicated. It's very diffuse. And it's, it's challenging to be able to actually get the sample and get a representative sample. So... You know, as I said last week, I like puzzles. Yeah. <laughs> and for me, it's one big puzzle. It's a very challenging puzzle. It's, um, you know, how how do you find these things? And it's particularly frustrating when you can smell it, but you can't find it. Um, and unfortunately, that happens often often enough that it it can be very frustrating. So the idea is, how do we collect representative samples? That's where you get into all the discussions about whether you're going to use TR-17 with the semi-canisters versus are you going to use uh, the um, sorbent collection? Or, you know, can you do a grab sample? Can What can we do for sensor? Um, you know, diffusion sampling. All of that, it, you know, at the same time, you've got to collect a representative sample of what you want. And so that's an issue. And then how do you collect enough of it that an instrument can actually see it? Um, you know, we're better in sensitivity than we used to be, but we've still got a long way to go. Um, so all of that together, just, you know, in this gross mixture. And then what makes it even more interesting is you start trying to figure out what is it that's bothering people. Yeah, and yeah. Now it's you not, <laughs> yeah. On. And it's, and I guarantee it, well, I, mean, I can't, this is my opinion that most of the things that we detect in air currently are, is not what's causing the problem. Because if it was, when you look from room to room, building to building, there's so much similarity. I, it's stuff down in the weeds that we're still trying to figure out how to detect. It's like flavor chemistry. Flavor chemistry, most of the things that give us the flavors, are not the big components. It's the very small components. So you think that there's some other component of the air that, that we may well be missing or of the 
environment in general. It may not be the air. It may be something we say absorb through, you know, uh, touching things or whatever. Could be. Yep. Yep. Interesting. And then, then you get into the whole thing of the 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 microbiome and, and of indoor environments and also of, of our own, you know, our own, uh, you know, all the fungi and bacteria and all the viruses, et cetera. The viruses really, uh, I find that fascinating, you know, that you can have a virus in you. Like my mother's going through a really bad thing right now with uh, shingles, you know, and, and she picked yeah. up that virus. How many years? My mom's 77 years old. She picked up that virus 70 years ago, you know, um, uh-huh. and she's still fighting it, you know, and, and uh, it's amazing what, you know, what sets it off. I, they have no idea what could set it off. So who knows? Uh, interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, let's move on a little bit to the exhalation breath. What what got your interest going with respect to, you know, our exhalation breath and trying to figure out from that? What might be, you know, what other, what health effects might be um, happening within us? Well, I mean, you know, it's actually some of the, the early pioneering work on breath was done by Linus Pauling. Um, and, you know, reading papers and all caught my interest. And then it was kind of like, can, can, well, are we able to do this? Um, I, I think there are some problems with, um, and I'm not going to go into all that right now because we get, we get pretty technical, but um, in the problems in the way that many people have approached breath analysis that's supported in the literature, it's, it is improving, but I, you know, I thought I had a better idea. Okay. So it's, it's, it's trying the better idea. Um, exposures in breath, I mean, we know, I mean, it, all you have to do is get around a person and you can breathe, you can smell things out of them, such as a person who is, an, who is a diabetic and is out of regulation, they have a very acetone smell to their breath. We know that they're giving off acetone. Hmm. Um, is there a way, then, to, to quantify that, to be able to actually tell a person, okay, you need X amount of something right now to be, to be able to get back in regulation? Um, we, we know that there are certain things that an asthmatic will give off if they are out of regulation. So how, how are we able to come up with a way to really quantify all this in a meaningful way that it can, can give real health data in a non-invasive manner that can, that can be used, um, to improve people's health? And and how have you started working toward this? What are you focusing on? The the sounds like chemical compounds that we're exhaling, or am I missing the boat? I'm focusing primarily in in the, my current research on what we are exhaling. Okay. We know that as inflammatory processes or metabolic processes go on in your body, you you give off volatile organic compounds. Those compounds are in your blood. And we can pull blood and we can look at them. Same thing with exposures. We can, we can do the same thing. How your body rids itself of that is to move them out through your lungs and you breathe them out. So it, it stimulates a blood test it, in the most theoretical best manner. It's a, it's a total simulation to a blood test. So that as we start understanding the metabolic processes better and what's going on, then we can we can actually be able to use it as a screening technology. I see. Cliff, do you have a follow up? I do. Uh, Charlene, you know, I think that you know last week's trivia quest question dealt with uh, breathalyzer, and you know, in my mind, I'm wondering, you know, what your equipment looks like. Uh, you know, how heavy it is, how big is it? Uh, you know, can it go into the field, and how is it like or unlike? what the audience, you know, would, would characterize as a breathalyzer. For cancer at the moment, what we are pursuing, as we were advised by a number of physicians, is to be able to use a less direct method. They want a method that is some, could be, to them, would be similar to a blood test. Okay. So we are not going to a sensor at this point in time with the cancer detection. Um 
we so the idea is to have a patient breathe into a sampler, a device that traps the air, the, what's coming out of their breath. It's then sent to a laboratory. It's analyzed. Um, we have purposely focused on keeping the instrumentation fairly commonly available, mass spectrometry, so that clinical labs do not have to set up with different uh, instrumentation, uh, and it can be globally widely available. And um, then the, you know, the, the, the mass spec gives off what it does, and then we have a biostatistical model that allows us to be able to uh, basically classify cancer, non-cancer. Okay. So let me, how does the, uh, do they wear it around their neck or in a, in a pocket or how does this work? Um, the way that we're targeting it is to um, have the sampler in, in a doctor's office so that you would go in for your physical or whatever. Okay. Um, and they will ask you to breathe into the sample, and it will be sent off to the clinical lab, just like a blood test. I see. Okay, I misunderstood. So they're going to go to the doctor's office, breathe into a tube or whatever. You're going to collect what comes out and then have it analyzed. And based on whatever you come back with, you may be able to help pinpoint the potential for some disease. Right. So it's, so it's a point-of-care technology Um and the samplers are small, so they basically like opening it up like a, you know, like the doctor opens up a syringe and uses it. That would be what it would be. There's rather than having someone sit at their kitchen table and a light go off and say you have cancer, because that's not how you want to find out you have cancer. Right. Right. Okay. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Now, um. Have you have you started? I guess you've started some kind of experiments with this now, and and how far along are you with this? Um, we have pilot studies for breast cancer, lung cancer, um, and the, and showing that we can differentiate between breast and lung cancer. We also have done um, hydration status. Hydration eventually will have to be a sensor um, because it, you need to be able to measure hydration status on the spot. It's a, it's a different. Uh, totally different need. Um, hydration status, I mean, we all know about kids getting dehydrated in the summer. Uh, you know, my kids had their time that they got to run to the hospital for their dehydration, you know, it's from summer camp. Um, it, it, it happens. Um, so there, there are reasons to do it for that, but they're good medical reasons. Um, we all hear about the, the teenage football player that starts spring practice, uh, uh, starts they call it fall practice, but it's really here. It's in the middle of summer. It's 100 degrees outside, um, and, and one or two die a year. Um, most of the time, that is probably from dehydration. We, we are most of us run around without sufficient hydration all the time, um, and when you are really get dehydrated, uh, your heart there's a high probability of a heart heart attack, no matter what your age because your heart can't pump right, your blood pressure runs, there's lack of blood flow, and a heart attack occurs. So it's really important to be able to measure hydration status, and we don't have a good method for it right now. Well, you really... Right uh, enough, we can't do it. You turned on some lights for me here now. So I think that's a really important one. And, and going back to the discussion of practitioners and, and researchers and getting them together, I'm thinking about guys working in an attic. Okay, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in a hot summer day in the attic, we have, you know, right now we kind of have to put them, you know, 15 minutes on, 15 minutes off or whatever. We're kind of guessing at their status, you know. Uh, we can measure the temperature and the relative humidity, get some idea of a, you know, some kind of a, a scale for, you know, what a, a hot climate is like in there. But then, so you're saying maybe at, at some point we'd be able to, actually measure through, is it through their breath, um, through the exhalation, the hydration status? That's what we hope. So maybe they could just every once in a while go down and breathe into a tube or whatever. And uh, But it sounds like you're not sure yet what we would be measuring in the exhalation breath. Um, uh, that's what. No, I mean, we, we've been able, we have done a, a study, um, a dehydration study, comparing it to uh, it, it is a very academic study at Georgia Tech with um, the School of, of um, Applied Physiology at Georgia Tech. 
Um, and we do know that we that that this method will work. Uh, you know, but we at the moment we don't have funding to take it farther. Okay. I think I got a text in from uh, Pat. I want to say hi to Pat Kaffer and Vic. They've been trying to get on forever. I got you finally. I got you because we've had problems with the iPads and all that. But anyway, Pat noticed that I mentioned that ammonia measurements for liver failure is now in use. I don't know if you realize that or not, but it sounds like pretty much the same thing. Yes. I mean, I, there there are some things that are being used. There is there is a device being used in the hospital. Um, it is FDA approved um, to look at um, after a heart transplant to to look at um, the ability, you know, to make sure that they're not rejecting the heart. Um, the A. pylori technology is now being used more widely to be able to use breath as a measure of you know do you have A. pylori which um, is the, shows whether whether you, or not you have um, ulcers. Ulcers, yeah. Um, so, so there are some. It's it's just for the wide range things. It's, it's a slow process. It's a slow process to convince all of the regulatory. The you know our biggest problem is to convince the investors that that this will work and that they want to give us money. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's it's a slow process. Cliff. Any follow-ups from you on that one? On that one, yeah, in terms of the pilot programs that you have you know, uh, with cancer research, are you looking for other hospitals to get involved with this, or um, are you getting sufficient data from the hospitals that are currently involved in the program? Frankly, at the moment, we're just looking for money to continue carrying on the study. Um, oh. But, you know, finding partners has been, for giving us patients, has been fairly easy. We're always looking for more. And the more we have, the better. But at the moment, we're stalled with a lack of money. Thanks to our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine. Your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean, C-L-E-A-N-F-A-X.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. I thought it might not be a bad idea to bring Dr. Wow in a little bit early today. It's um, about 22. we got about 20 minutes to go. And I thought maybe we'd bring him in a little bit early because I'm sure he's got some thoughts on this as well. Absolutely. All right, let's bring our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, in. Oh, Dieter, do we have you? I am here. Okay. I have to send you a new clip anyway. All right. Uh, <laughs> I have uh, several hundred CDs, so I ought to find something for five seconds. <laughs> uh, you send us whatever you would like. We'll put it on for you, Dieter. What do you think so far, Dieter? I mean, uh, I'm sure you have some comments and questions, and I thought this was uh, Well, yeah, it, uh, yeah. Dr. Bayer is looking at one of the most sophisticated systems that I know of, of what we are trying to do here. And uh, here are a couple of my thoughts, and I was, when I worked for the Bayer Chemical Corporation, no relationship, unfortunately, um, 
I was very much interested in cellular chemicals and the action of those chemicals on the human body. But let's go back to the, uh, uh, to the very beginning. We are outbred people. For all practical purposes, we are all unique. Our DNA is unique. And let's throw out a couple of identical twins so uh, they don't count in this, uh, in, in this discussion. And uh, uh, Dr. Bayer mentioned that also, that asthma trigger, and sometimes it's there immediately, and sometimes somebody is uh, reacting three days, four days later. Is that because of the exposure three days ago, two days ago, one day ago, or an hour ago? It is one of the most difficult questions to answer. And um, uh, people have been... Uh, 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 looking at that, uh, with the air analysis, uh, here comes a huge problem, and I have been involved with air analysis for probably 30 years or something like that, and I saw how our analytical methods became more and more and more sophisticated. Uh, we started out with a gas chromatograph, and we got peaks. And the peaks indicate, of quote, what is there, and you're still not 100% really, uh, sure of what it really is. Then we got a GC and a mass spectrometer. And people knew that I had tinkered with that, and then they called me and said, Dito, 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 we took an air sample over I paid $550 for it, and I got the results. Can you help me to interpret those? And I said, no, not really. I know exactly what the results look like. And Dr. Bayer said that, mentioned that also. It is overwhelming. There are hundreds and hundreds of compounds in the air most of them I've never heard of and never ever will see again. Is that a trigger? I don't know. Is, does it, is, there, is it a possibility that there is a trigger in the parts per billion range, not to mention the part per trillion, or does it have to be higher? Well, of course. I worked with a bunch of very reactive chemicals, um, the polyurethanes and the isocyanates, which are used to make polyurethane paint and polyurethane foam, they are, they are active little chemicals, and they bind with just about anything and make circulating antibodies if inhaled and so on. Uh, I worked also with epoxy. Basically the same problem, very highly reactive uh, uh, chemical. The same thing with formaldehyde. So here comes the thing. I like that breath analysis thing. Now, the closest, what comes out of your breath is the closest that can possibly, under normal sir, and a healthy body and so on, in a functioning body, that can come to the blood. Now, the blood is a wonderful integrator. It goes through every organ in the body, and it doesn't take very long. It takes minutes to go from your big toe to your earlobe. So that is there. Now we have the blood that collects whatever may be there, good, bad, or indifferent. Now it comes to the lung where the blood has to be oxygenated. Now the blood is separated from the dry side of the lung, hopefully dry, uh, by basically... Uh, two cell membranes. It is incredibly thin. So a lot of materials can come from the blood that was at some organ where there may have been disease, gets into the lung, now you exhale it. That is wonderful. That is beautiful if that can be done and then be analyzed. But uh, Dr. Bayer said, we are just in the beginning of trying to, not to understand, we understand how difficult it is, but to interpret uh, uh, the results. And she mentioned uh, Linus Pauling, one of my favorites, one, I think one of the few guys who got two Nobel Prizes. I know the other one is Madame Curie, because I looked at her uh, a tomb in, uh, in Paris in the Pentagon, and I read a little bit about her. I think she has also two 
uh, Nobel Prizes, one in physics and one in chemistry. Good luck. <laughs> let, me, let me ask a question here, Dieter. Um, sure. Dr. Baer, uh, Dieter brings up an interesting point. I was thinking about this, which is why I brought him on earlier. So I would imagine one of the obstacles you have to deal with is some of what we inhale gets exhaled right back out. But as Dieter was saying, some of what we inhale goes through the blood system and then comes back out. Do you have to try and kind of differentiate between or separate out what what just got exhaled back out and what actually went through the system? Yes. <laughs> we do. And we have we have we have uh, ways of doing that. Um but but that's always you know, that's something that we, we do monitor. Um what we collect is the breath of the lowest alveolar region, and so we have to teach people how to breathe properly into our system. It, it basically is very similar to uh, how and you have during it when an asthmatic takes a methacholine test to see if they're asthmatic. It's in a spirometry test. It's very similar to what they do, um, so that we try to eliminate as much as possible um, the exposures. But I also collect information on exposures. There's some things that I just know because I've done enough people. Um, I can tell somebody's eaten garlic in the last week. <laughs> um, you know, so there's, there's various things that you do to eliminate this. There are some researchers that say that you have to have someone wash their mouth out. There are some researchers that say you have to collect the air, the building air at the same time, which we have done. Um, to, to differentiate. So there's, there's a lot of, still a lot of theory out there of the best way to do it. But now on the other side, because you can measure exposures this way, it is a phenomenal way to measure personal exposures. Um, so, and, and that work is also going on. Um, if, if you have just pumped gas, you'll have benzene in your breath. Um, if you're a smoker, I mean, there's a wide variety of things that I can tell about smokers. Um, so, you know, instead of, to me, I think we should be focusing very heavily on not having the, you know, say in a, um, manufacturing area, you call in ocean, they'll have people wear personal pumps and collect the air that way. I would, I think we should be looking more at those people's breaths the VFC coming out of their breath and start measuring exposures there because then you're actually measuring body burden. Now, how quickly after the exposure, and I guess that would vary by whatever they were exposed to, can you still measure these, you know, exposure? Uh, the, can you still pick it up on the exhalation? Um, it, you, it, when you're breathing it in, you measure it very quickly, very quickly. Very quickly. So you would have to get... Um, uh, get them to breathe for you pretty quickly after after the exposure. Unless it's, unless it's, unless it's been a long-term exposure, probably. But again, this is all stuff we're trying to figure out. Okay. And what about particles? Do you, do you, are you doing anything with respect to particles and exhalation of particles? Is that even more of a challenge? I am not doing any. I personally am not doing any of that area. Um You know, I'm 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 trying to think. I I haven't read much about anybody trying to do that area. There are different levels of there, there's what's called um, it's it's called EBC and it's exhaled breath condensate, which allows you to pick up more polar compounds um, and less volatile compounds. You might be able to do particulate matter that way. I, but I don't. I really don't know anyone that's actually focusing on particulate matter from breath at this point. I see. I, I could have missed it, but I can't think of anybody doing that right now. Okay, Cliff, <laughs> did you have anything you wanted to put in here? Well, I, you know, I, I think that you know, I'd like to know what she sees in the crystal ball for the future. You know, in terms of uh, what do you think the next a hot issue in indoor environmental quality is going to be? Um, the, in my opinion, the hottest issue that is, is really coming to the forefront now is starting to do um, the, the semi-volatile compounds and to understand those. Well, um, the semi-volatile compounds? 
So the things like, I guess, the, what is it, PHA? Yeah, PAHs, phthalates, flame retardants. Um, We we know now that there are very long-term persistent health effects. But we do, we do not know enough to be able to quantitate exposure at this point. I see. And I'm curious, before we, I want to go back to Dr. Wow in a moment, but before we do, we're, we're getting a little low on time. We've got about 10 minutes. What other types of, you've got other patents, what other types of um, equipment, you know, uh, ideas are you working on with respect to, you know, the work you do with Hygieia? Um, I try, the, I think the main other patent that I have that impacts Hygieia is that we are um, trying to work more on integrated sensor systems that um, can be used either as handheld, in place, um, wider variety of compounds can be measured, uh, you know, better real-time Detection limits, etc. Exposures. I mean, so the whole the whole sensor side um, in in that area is the of, of the things that I have patents for is we're still working with Hygieia. The other things I don't think we're working with Hygieia anymore. Are you? I'm just curious. Are you working with? I assume you've got manufacturers of these sensors, etc., that help you with this and and supply you with the you know some of the sensors, etc. Yes. Okay. I mean, I think they would jump all over that. I would assume. You know, that's. They're, they're... All all of us have the same issue: funding. Yeah. Yeah. Funding is always the issue. Um, that's that's the, the especially in the U.S. Uh, that's that's the really really difficult thing is to convince someone to pay for the research that needs to be done, and indoor air is not considered to be a real hot topic when it comes to research funding. I see. Dieter, I just wanted, I didn't want to cut you off there. I wanted to ask that question. Oh, no, Is there another? No, that is always good. But yeah, another, another uh, factor that has something to do with uh, what is in your breath is the solubility of the material. And we don't know the solubility of 6,000 different chemicals. And uh, that has to be done. That is relatively easily done. But then we have to identify it and all of that. And with the particle research, uh, uh, I rather measure what is being inhaled rather than exhaled. When you inhale aerosols, um, many of them, depending on particle size, are deposited in the lung. And anything that you exhale it's definitely less, it's all microscopic, it's definitely less than 10 micrometers in diameter, that is the aerodynamic equivalent diameter, because all the other stuff is um, deposited. Now it is deposited in the lung. From where can it go into the lung? Well, it can go into the bloodstream. We know that. And um, so that is another, uh, that is a problem with particles, and I, I, I rather go for blood. Or, uh, uh, I like that breath analysis thing. This is this is good, and I don't have to poke into somebody's artery or vein, and uh, I, I, I get a sample. But uh, the 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 obstacles and the, the research that has to be done, I mean, it's mind-boggling to me. Yeah, I got a note too from a listener that there is some research going on with respect to exhaled particles in the e-cigarettes and their effect on indoor air quality. I've seen a lot of that in the news lately. I don't know if you have any comment on that, Dr. Bear? No. Um, I'm very much an anti-smoking of all type advocate. So. <laughs> understood. Understood. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I second the motion. <laughs> <laughs> Dieter, was there anything else you wanted to add before we move on? No, I, I think uh, I think we are at the forefront of something that will not be solved next weekend. I guarantee you that. 
And to me, it is exciting that we look at those things. And we have today techniques which I couldn't dream of when I was a student 50 years ago. And um, uh, so that is going to be interesting. And we will be doing, let's call it toxicology or something like that, or pharmacology. And uh, I think there are steps around that are going to be mind-boggling. And because of sophisticated things, and uh, I don't want to be the one who interprets them all. This is going to be incredibly difficult. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I'm curious, are you doing any of this with um, with respect to the breath analysis? Are you working with mostly adults, or is it also stuff you're working with, with children on? Everything we've done has been with adults. And uh, we did the, the hydration status was done with um, students at Georgia Tech. They had to be over the age of 18. I see. Yeah, that's got to be another factor to take into consideration, you know, with first, I guess, permission, but also the kid's metabolism is different than an adult's metabolism. But I was just thinking with all the work you've done in schools that um, that would be really interesting to try and figure out, you know, from breath analysis, some of the differences in exposures in different schools, maybe different parts of the country, maybe different parts of the world. It would be very interesting. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, it actually wasn't, I mean, I, I've thought about exposures before in, in schools, but I haven't really, I haven't attempted to pursue getting permission to do children. I see. <laughs> Okay. Um, there's another comment, just quickly, that absorbed chemicals are also excreted from the sweat glands. I guess that's another variable you have to take into consideration. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of... Uh... And there has been some research on sweat. Oh, there has? Yes. That's, that would be interesting as well. So you take the sweat and then have that analyzed and try and figure out what, you know... Well, there you know it's going through. Uh, it's not just being exhaled back out. It's going through the system. But let me go back to that just a moment with respect to trying to get the lower alveoli. So I guess what you're trying to do there is you, you want to get the breath toward the end of exhalation? That's correct. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Just like when you're doing your uh, uh, FVC, FVC, when you have to go get tested for um respiratory protection you know you got to blow out all the air all the air all the air and then you want to catch it right at the end then you're checking that that air that's coming out from the bottom of the alveoli interesting all right yeah anything that we missed that you would like to add here dr bear um i don't think so I, it's been fascinating a lot of fun to have you here Dieter. anything that that you wanted to add well <clears throat> I, I think maybe one step into the direction of uh, uh, finding solutions or answers, uh, maybe animal studies. Uh, yeah, I can control very easily whether a guinea pig eats uh, bananas or, uh, uh, or, or garlic or something like that. But you know, you, you, if, if you... If you expose a person, and we are exposed to hundreds of chemicals every day, and then to figure out which is which is a di difficult one. In the laboratory, I, I can control that. And I say, hey, let's do this and this and this, and let's see whether we can find that. And if we can analyze that, well, then we also know, we have a control group, we also know that there is a lot of stuff going on that is uh, not, it, it is unique and specific to the animal. And then we measure through the breath only what uh, we want to measure. And then we can start with two and three and four and ten compounds. That still is a difficult, difficult task. But uh, I have a little bit better control than with humans. You know, I, if I have a study group, I can't tell them, yeah, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, eat this bread, and don't eat a banana, and don't eat a tomato, and what have you. <laughs> well, uh, so that is going to be difficult. Dr. Bear, are you familiar with any studies that, on the exhalation um, that focused on animal studies? Yes, there are animal studies ongoing. I see. 
that makes a lot of sense, uh, and I'm sure in part for the reasons Dr. Wow has pointed out. Uh, Cliff, before we go, any final thoughts, comments, questions? Well, I just had one, one final question, Doctor. You know, are you handy me- mechanically? Okay. Uh, It seemed to be that you know you you have patents on sensor technology and so on and so forth. So uh, who fixes the stuff around the house? You or your husband? Um, it depends. Okay, good. (laughs) He probably does more than I do, but um, because I one time took apart the ice maker on the refrigerator because those fittings look just like place like fittings. I thought I knew what I was doing because I did it on a Saturday afternoon right when all the stores were, the, um, summers were closing and they are not uh-huh. like fittings. <laughs> <laughs> so he had to fix it and he was not too happy with me. <laughs> he does He does the dishes when Dr. Mayer is checking the efficiency of the furniture. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> no not, that doesn't work that way. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a, a fantastic two weeks. We really, really appreciate having you, and, and we'll have to get you back in the, in the future. Um, and I look forward to seeing you at, at future conferences. It was great to see you and spend a little time. Thank you. It has been lots of fun to do. Great. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Charlene Bear, great stuff. Of course, thanks to my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Cliff, great job. Always a pleasure, Joe. Uh, love these shows. Uh, of course, thanks to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wild, Jessica Lawson at the controls. And by the way, next week, folks, we're going to do a flashback Friday because the Z-Man and I will be at the RIA conference down in Orlando on Friday, uh, actually Thursday and Friday. If you're in the area or at the conference there, please stop by. I'll be at the IICRC booth. Cliff will be wandering around. Stop and say hello. We always love hearing from you. Please uh, come back and join us uh, in two Fridays and jump in and check out that flashback. What we do there is we, we find a show that probably be something on restoration next week because of the RIA. And then Jess and I go back through. We find a really good show. We clean up the audio on it, little little work on the uh, messages and all. We, we get it cleaned up to the point where it's uh, perfect again for rebroadcast, and we rebroadcast those on uh, Flashback Friday. So thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next week for the next episode of IAQ Radio. <laughs> <laughs>